Hey listeners, well, we've arrived at the very last episode. Well, the last we recorded anyway. I reckon Pastor Jock and Helen's life has many more episodes to come. This is part four of our series. And so if you've arrived late to this party, make sure that you go back and listen to episodes one, two, and three. I hope you enjoy. God bless. We just had a nice lunch. We did have a very sure nice lunch. We did have a nice lunch. Which is why you wow. keep coming back. You're not yeah. coming back for the testimony. You're coming back for the lunch. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No. <laughs> so we're going to see how we could go today to yeah. uh, see if we can get to, get to present day. Yeah. But there's a lot of years between when we finished last, which was I think our last recording finished when we'd purchased the Vogue in Adelaide because the revival was going gangbusters. So we bought the Vogue in 76 and we'd come from Elizabeth uh, with about 330 people and we'd started off in Elizabeth a decade or so before with only 30 people. Yeah. So it really had in the mid-70s, early 70s to mid-70s, that had really taken off. And then by the time, revival. so by the time we bought the Vogue in sort of nineteen seventy six, nineteen seventy six, outgrown. We had outgrown because we had three halls at Elizabeth. The first one only seated about seventy people, and then we used that one as a Sunday school while we built half a hall, mm-hmm. and we filled that. I remember to about one hundred and eighty people, and then the other half we built. The first hall just had a blank wall and no foyer. When we did the other half, we also ended up completing the whole building mm. and that was starting to bulge at the seams at about 330 and that's when Pastor Don very dramatically said one day, we've got to go back, or no, not got to, it's time we went back into Adelaide into the, and started yeah. looking. We didn't know what we were going to buy. I won't go through all the – we did look at a lot of other places. Fortunately, we caught it, as happens with theatres, sometimes they're popular and sometimes they're not. We caught it right when – Black and white TV was converting to colour TV, and it caused the. And once colour TV came in, all the theatres suffered as a result. So we got a theatre at a very reasonable price. Mm. And so then we had a theatre that sat six or hundred or nine hundred, nine hundred people. Yeah, not when we first got it. We had to redo the seating downstairs and increase the area down. But when we finished all that, we all redid the platform. We had just a big sloping platform at the front because it was a theatre. Mm. I remember it. as a kid r- rolling down yeah, that slope. Yeah, rolling down that. <laughs> exactly. So we pulled yeah. all that out and the old stage was still there. Just took the front bit off, the ramp off, and then put a lot more seats in and uh, we ended up with seating for 900. But right at that time, when we moved from, from uh, Elizabeth to Adelaide, bound to happen, I suppose, we lost a few people. Just weren't prepared. Just because of the distance? Because of the distance. I remember one couple in particular where the guy had done a lot of work on the hall and he couldn't, couldn't, he couldn't get his heart to agree to leave the hall. He just, the, the original hall the out of Elizabeth. The original hall. It was his hall. And, he and, his, and the, we, we had actually sold the, the hall to the Assemblies of God. So they, another Pentecostal church moved in, so they stayed there. But it was very, very few. Hmm. A lot of people in Gawler, a lot of people in Elizabeth, Salisbury, all started going to the Vogue. But it's also at that time started to really boom down south and a lot of that, the revival from then on, was already some, quite a few down south, even when we were right up at Elizabeth. People like the Gunters and that were travelling all the way to Elizabeth from Moffat Vale. Mm. So then we, we bought a house just around the corner from the Vogue in Goodwood and uh, we um, we just, it just went, 
well, the old saying, gangbusters, and we were slowly starting to baptise more and more people. I can just remember the upstairs crash was just full of babies, 25 babies where the bassinets were just lined up and you had to step over them. <laughs> I think we had 500 kids under five in the Sunday school or something at one point. It was enormous. <laughs> so, the, so with all this excitement going on, yep. when did you move to New Zealand? Right, so we'll jump to that point, 1982. So not long after. It was only not a few long years, after yeah. and it had grown to around just before we went to New Zealand to 1,000 people yeah. from the 330 yeah. from 1976. So in 1982, it was actually Pastor John's suggestion that we go on a holiday through New Zealand, first time we ever went overseas. And we went with a couple of the sisters in the Lord, just Helen and I and two sisters, young young women. And um, what we did notice on that holiday is that there was no fellowship in the South Island. Right. There had been one years before in Christchurch, but there was nothing there at that point. We were so used to being at three or four meetings a week to go for 10 days, I think it was, in the South Island with no fellowship, other than we had fellowship, and travelled to Christchurch, to Dunedin, out to Queenstown and all that, that um, we uh, felt we noticed no fellowship. And then Wellington, Rotorua, Bay of Plenty, Auckland, Bay of Islands and so on. They were all fellowships up north and we went to all of them. It was very exciting. And we did comment, not so much on Christchurch, we commented on Dunedin. Wow, a city of 120,000 people and no fellowship. Christchurch was over 300,000 and with our fellowship I'm talking about. Mm. So we never thought much more about it and we came back to Adelaide in 82 and then halfway through 83 there was a I thought that we should have a better assembly in London. We had a little assembly, but it didn't seem to be going anywhere. And we really needed London. London. So yeah. we need a really good assembly in London. And um, Pastor Darrell Williams had done really well in, in Dubbo, and we all sort of felt like we don't want Pastor Darrell stuck in Dubbo for the rest of his life. I was in Dubbo at that particular point. Yeah, I spent a year in, oh, oh, a little bit less than a year exciting. in Dubbo. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I remember. So this is around 8081. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So Pastor Lloyd came to Adelaide and um, we had a big discussion on where Daryl should go or where he'd like to go, Sydney. Went along. And Pastor Lloyd went out of the room for a minute and when he came back in, he's coming to Adelaide. Yeah, how did that happen? One minute he's going to Sydney. And what had happened is when Pastor Lloyd had gone out, Pastor John had turned to Daryl and just said, what do you think about coming to Adelaide? And Daryl said, that's where I want to go. So um, he then came to Adelaide around 81, I think, somewhere around that time, and he fitted in like a glove. And I used to do nearly all the Sunday night preaching. Pastor John used to do under afternoon, but I immediately split it with me and Daryl on a Sunday night. I said to Pastor John, hey, we can't have this guy sitting in the back seat, you know, he needs to be there. So Daryl and I started to share Sunday night. And um, I think by that time too, Pastor Graham and Pastor Daryl, Somewhere there became pastors. They'll, they'll remember when it was. Yeah. But for a while, there was just Pastor John and I. And so let's jump to going to New Zealand. So halfway through 1982, there was this discussion on somebody go to London and Daryl's name came up again a couple of years after he'd moved to Adelaide. And he was quite keen about the idea. And we drove to the rally in Melbourne in the middle of 1983. It's the year after we'd been on holidays to New Zealand. 
And I heard, you know, I wasn't much in the discussion, but Daryl was going to go to London. I just said to Helen, wow, that would be exciting because we'd gone to Kangaroo Island and yeah. Hobart and sort of itchy feet sort of. But we were very much part of Adelaide at that time. And um, so uh, I think I'd been in Adelaide 16 years without going anywhere. And I just said, you know, well, what, that'd be exciting, just discussion. And at the end of the rally, Daryl decided he didn't want to go to London. He liked it in Adelaide. And I thought, if Adelaide can do without Daryl Williams, it can certainly do without me. <laughs> so uh, I went and saw Pastor John. He wasn't very excited about it. But uh, in the end, um, he gave way. It was just hard to get Pastor John to give way. And uh, so he said, all right. But you've got to keep it. No, no, we'll get to that in a minute. So he said, that'll be all right. I went home and talked to Helen. Or maybe I talked to Helen about it already. But I talked to the kids at three teenage children. And they weren't keen because they were all in the young people's at the time. London's a long way away. And the other thing Pastor John said was um, whoever goes to London needs quite a lot of money to even survive. And we had a little bit, but you reckon not enough. So I couldn't quite get the clear okay from him. And Helen and the girls went, and then Helen said, oh, no, I said to Helen, hey, but we've got the okay to go somewhere. I don't want, I don't want to lose that. You know, I don't want to go back. So then Helen said, what about Christchurch? So it was Helen's fault. Blame me. So I said, yeah, well, that's the thought. And we talked to the girls. Well, it was only New Zealand, close to Adelaide sort of thing. So I went back to Pastor John. said, no, we won't go to London. We'll go. And as you know, later on, Ray Ledger and Chris Kernahan, they went to mm. London and got London going. So, um, uh, But that was straight after the rally, so sort of end of June – when we decided we were going to go to Christchurch, I think rightly so, Pastor John said, well, when are you going to go? I said, well, we've got to let the kids finish this year's schooling, so it won't be till Christmas time. And he said, well, therefore, I don't want you to announce it. He said, I'll let you announce it right at the last minute. I don't want it to be a distraction. This is typical wisdom of Pastor John. It was very right. It was a very good thing to say. We don't want thinking about that. I mean, I would have rushed in, we're going to Christchurch, you know. Funny thing that did happen then is Mark Watcho came to me with another brother in the Lord at the time, Cameron Singleton. I know Cameron. Yeah, two young guys, yeah. doctor these days. Yeah. And they wanted to go off and do something for the Lord. They're around 20 or something. And I'm thinking, I know where I want you to go, to Christchurch, but I'm not allowed to say that to you. Mm-hmm. So they talk about other another place on the East Coast somewhere to go and help there. And um, so we kept it quiet until I think November, only a couple of weeks before we went, and announced that Mark came to me straight after. Why didn't you tell us that? When I know where we are, we're going to Christchurch with you. So we were very lucky straight away. People wanted to come with us. And uh, we sold our, we had a townhouse in Goodwood near Hyde Park, in, but actually Goodwood, just on King William Road there. And we put it up for sale. I was a a conveyancer, a land broker, as they called it then. So I knew all about the legal part of real estate, but I never, I hadn't sold any real estate. And uh, gave it to a, one of my uh, clients, a, a salesman that I knew was very good. He, he didn't sell it. And uh, we thought we might have to rent our, uh, all our money was tied up in that. And so we um, ended up going uh and I think it was three days before we left, the, the agency ran out. And I just put a very simple little ad in the paper and I said something like, um, I had in those days 77,000 
office above 77,000. And I think it was about two days before we left. We had all packing at all those binding things, packing the teachers, and the place looked like a bomb had gone off. And this guy came around. I just said, oh, all right, come and have a look. He came around. He walked over everything, went through there. I just went on doing up the box that I was doing. He came back and he said, all right, I'll buy it. And I said, so what do you want to pay for? He said, oh, 77000 I was very cheeky. I said, office above 77000 So he gave me another $1,000. And we'd sold it. And I said to him then, I think it was on a Thursday or Friday or something, and I just said, if you cool off, we have the two-day cooling off, 24, 48 clear working days. We had the weekend in between. And I said, if you cool off, we're done. He said, I will not cool off. And he never did. So the settlement, we'd already gone. I got on a bus and we went to Melbourne, not to Adelaide Airport. We went from Melbourne, from Adelaide to Melbourne, then caught a plane to Christchurch. And that's how we landed in Christchurch, as Helen said earlier today, on a very cold, wintry summer's day on the 9th of December. And um, I'd booked a, a cabin in a caravan park. And when we got there, it, was, it really was shocking. It was uh, impossible to almost stay there. It was freezing cold. And like I said to you before, Jock went off with Leone uh, in the uh, taxi and I'm sitting on the case with Vicky alongside me and I'm thinking, oh, Helen, what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) In Adelaide, the sun is shining. (laughs) We'd left one daughter back in Adelaide, Ruth, because she was already engaged and got married six months later to David Russell. So it was just the four of us. And Leonie immediately said, I'm not going back to school. So it was only Vicky that ended up going to school. And um, so... And so there's nobody else there. There's no fellowship there. Oh, there there was. Oh, there was. Okay. Right. We didn't know there was anybody in the whole of the South Island. But there was a young couple and we went out one day on it. We only had push bikes. I brought... I can't believe we brought a car from Australia. We shipped the car across. Shipped the car across. (laughs) People did things like that then. And the cars in New Zealand at the time were all bombs. And then they later on brought in these Japanese imports, second-hand cars. Yeah. Standard of cars went up. Well, so But we did take our push bikes. And we had them with us at the on cabin. On the plane. But within a week in that cabin, I just had enough. And we moved into a, a motel. And but while we were in the cabin, yep. we came back one day and there was a note pinned on the door. It says, welcome to Christchurch and we'd like to see you and... And it, right at the end, he put, God bless ya, YA, God bless ya. Uh, that's interesting. And we went around there and we first, so we did have somebody, yeah. just a young couple with a little baby. So Hello. Phil Maxwell <laughs> and his wife came. We got yeah, you and Maxwell yeah. in the assembly yeah. here yeah. in Adelaide. Yeah. And um, they came over with their children. We had a little meeting in the, in, in the um, motel. And uh, then we moved up to a house. Yeah, we all lived in the same house. And Fred Needham, First. pastor in, in Auckland at the time, had got up to his assembly in front of his assembly and said, we're starting a new assembly in Christchurch and they need people to help them. Anybody that wants to go to Christchurch can just go. And we picked up about three or four couples and a couple mm. of singles and, mm. and people came from Adelaide yeah, yeah. until uh, Adelaide got upset with us. And Pastor, I got a phone call from Pastor John said, you've got to stop people going. <laughs> and I remember I said to him, very cheeky, I said, oh, I didn't ask them to come. He said, you didn't discourage them, though, did you? <laughs> I thought, no, I didn't. And then I did say, stop, 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 stop. I think within about a month, though, we ended up with 20 people. Right. So we had an incredibly good start. Yeah. And Not we all bought a them... hall. 
they bought a hall as soon as we got there with the money from the sale I'd done of their a little property. development okay. yeah. in the Adelaide Hills, which would have cleared our mortgage. And we had a great business. And we're right in the middle of Adelaide. We blew all that and went to Christchurch. And um, so uh, where was I going there with that? Well, we bought a hall. We didn't want the people to be in a hired hall because I think about the hired hall we had up at Elizabeth uh, originally. We used to have to get there early on a Sunday morning and sweep Set the beer out, out. Yeah. the door. Yeah. And we didn't want to go through that again. So we thought we would rather be the ones that were in the rented accommodation. But the You personally, be, yes. being a rented house yes. so the church could have a, yeah. a hall that it owned. Yeah, hmm. yeah. That was So that was better for us. And within yeah. about a week, and Joe Maxwell, Phil's wife, rang me up and said, there's a little hall advertised. And uh, so when I had a look at it, it was very run down. We used to all joke that we we have white ants in Australia, but in, in New Zealand they have borers. And they reckon that the only thing holding the building together was the borers holding hands. <laughs> so, and it was riddled with borer all over. And uh, But, gee, a lot of people got saved in that hall. Yeah, yeah. People come to really love it. Funny old beat-up hall down near yes. the Brighton, North Brighton Beach. So away we went. Um we used to go outreaching on Friday nights right. in the square because there was a, a section of land around the cathedral where you could stand between that and the council land so you were neither on anybody's land particularly. Well, if you're on the council land and they said you just step back yes, and you're on Anglican right. land. <laughs> <laughs> so I never tried to control it. But just talking to people on the street, that first year we baptised over 40 people mm. that came. Wow. Yeah. Very exciting. But it was yeah. very exciting. And you were still, Adelaide was still booming, Melbourne was booming, so revival was big everywhere at Just that time. everywhere, everywhere generally everywhere. because oh, that yes. was the time yes. in society. Yes. The hippies, yeah. the surfies, mm. the, the yeah. drug addicts. That's when we really had great revival. Mm. Yeah. And so how long did you stay in New Zealand for? 15 years. Okay, so a long time. 15 years. Yeah, mm. yeah so... Um, Really, I suppose we just ticked along and we got up to about 80 spirit-filled people, maybe a little bit more now and again, maybe with kids, about 120 people. We eventually sold that hall, moved into a rental property for a while and went and bought another hall uh, in Shakespeare Road. And, um, well, that's how we sort of ticked along. I mean, it really went okay until, unfortunately, the 1994 split, and that really did wreck New Zealand in, not totally wreck it, but it was a very sad day. So, um, and so this was the first fellowship in the South Island. Did others spring up yes, outside we had a of that? Great revival, and that was why it was a shame mm. what happened in '94. So, we grew old. Oh, tell the story of the starting of the Dunedin, which is the next biggest city. Got four or five big cities in New Zealand Auckland, number one, Wellington, number two, Christchurch, number three, Dunedin, number four, and maybe Hamilton, number five. Yeah, yeah. And so, big, they're the big towns in New Zealand. So Dunedin had about 120,000 people, big university, Christchurches too, but particularly Dunedin was a university town. And they have an interesting setup. I'm sure they mostly still got it, that each university only specialises in two or three subjects. So in particular, if you want to be a doctor in New Zealand, you study in Dunedin. Right. Whether you live in Auckland or wherever you live, you go to Dunedin and study there. And that's why, that's what happened. Not that the guy got converted was a doctor, although his girlfriend was studying to be a doctor. As Graham McKinstry was studying computer science. And we didn't even know he was there. Mum and Dad in the fellowship up in Auckland, 
And it's interesting, all his family were, were just workers, blue-collar people, and when he said he wanted to go to university, it was, hey, we, we don't go to university, <laughs> but he did, and he was very good. And then yeah, right on Easter, we'd only been there, whatever that was, three months, 1984, let's have a little camp. We had enough people, a lot of people had moved in from... I'll just digress for a second. It was interesting trying to form an assembly where people had come from Adelaide and people had come from Auckland because there's quite a few different, not doctrinally. Just, just cult- cultural difference. Cult- but yes. even the way assemblies were run, mm. you know, a different way of doing things. So trying to... And get... how we sang the choruses. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. But it, it did all work, you yeah. know, and some yeah. of the Auckland people went back, didn't work out for them. Some of the Adelaide people went back. I remember one couple that got quite upset with me and it dawned on me what they were trying to do. And I said, are you trying to make me into John Corman? I'll never, ever be John Corman. And I said, you might be surprised at this. I don't want to be John Corman. <laughs> I want to be Jock Duncan. I want John Corman to be John Corman. So if you're going to try and get me, make me like Adelaide, it's not going to work. You're going to be very disappointed. I could, could never live up to, you know, Pastor John. It's a re- I think it's a really interesting point because... I mean, I've you know lived in lots of fellowships myself, and yeah. uh, and I know plenty of people that have, and and I see, I just I, I see in each assembly a real personality of that assembly. Yeah, and yeah, and it's often it often it's often similar to what the personality of the city or the town is, yeah, uh, obviously. True, true. And so, you know, I've worked in business across the country and I see in each, you know, Sydney's mm-hmm. different from Melbourne, they do business different in Adelaide and you see yeah. the same thing in assemblies, right? They're just, yeah. just slightly different in the way they do things. And if we, try to, if we try and be what we're not, yeah. um, it doesn't work because it's not authentic. And they were a bit homesick and then yeah. when people are homesick, yeah. they look for an out yeah. and yeah. it must yeah. be his fault. Yeah. Yeah. It actually was, I don't know. But, so they got a bit upset, some of them, not Badly, they just went back to Adelaide. Yeah, went back into the Adelaide Fellowship. Yeah. but then others settled down. Like Mark Watcho, Pastor Mark, as we he is now, who took over out when we moved back to Australia. He's only a young lad of twenty at the time, yeah. and he and Cameron came to there to be there to see if they would fit in. Yeah. And after six months, make up their mind. Well, three months down the track, Cameron decided he wanted to go back to Adelaide. That was good. Yeah. Uh, studying to be an engineer, didn't wasn't quite happy with studying to be, and later on studied to be a doctor, mm. which is what he is now, a very successful doctor. And but um, Mark said, "This is it. I'm not going home." Later on, his mum and dad moved over. Roy and Leah both. I died. didn't realise he was from here originally. I interviewed yeah. Jason a little while ago yeah. um, oh. about his healing on his heart, yeah. which oh, is yeah. quite a few episodes yeah. ago. So yeah, yeah I yeah. didn't realise Pastor Mark was originally yeah. from here. Yes. Yeah, so when his mum and dad came to the Lord, he was six and his sister, yeah. Lisa, was four. Something like that. Yeah. And um, so Roy and Leah came in 1968, had a huge impact on the Adelaide Assembly because the same week they came, Rex and Thelma Hazy came and the Assembly changed its whole direction when those two families came to the Lord. Yeah. Mm. So, um, so Mark said, no, I'm staying, which was very good for me. And uh, he sort of became my 2IC over the years. I mean, I don't want to go into it all. We had ups and downs. Going back to what happened in New Zealand, I got this phone call around Easter uh, when we'd been there, say, three months, around April, March, whenever Easter was that year, from this guy called Graham McKinstry. And he said who he was, and he's in Dunedin studying, doing studying computer science. And he'd heard from mum and dad up in Auckland that we were there, and he said, are you having a little Easter camp? 
And we were going to just go to the hall each day because we amazing. At a little assembly, we had a hall. And then just go, it was all new to us, let's go tourist on very, very touristy place, New Zealand, all over the Banks Peninsula through to Akaroa and all within two or three hours and all that sort of thing. We did that every day and had a meeting every morning and night over Easter. And that assembly, mostly about the same size, grew to about 30 or 40 people, mainly from the university. And then that was the next first, sorry, the first assembly after Christchurch. Then Blenheim, which is north of Christchurch, a guy called David Brown uh, came down from Auckland. And then we had a little outreach in a town just south of us at Timaru. Uh, Ian Stephen was a young man that became the pastor. And then a, another guy from Sydney, we're just starting off in the town in between that, at Ashburton. And then, as I said, the split came and that sort of devastated it all. But in his heyday, we had some great camps at Hanmer Springs. We got up to over 220 people at the camps. A lot of North Islanders would come down. Aussies would come over. And uh, it, was, it was like one fellowship. And that's really what did affect people when the trouble came in the 90s. I won't go all through the negatives, but that mm. was the reality of what happened there. But we did have some really good revival, mm. a lot of miracles, and mm. a lot of people just converted straight off the street, and a lot mm. of them stayed. Can you remember some of the miracles? Hey, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> well, let's talk a couple of testimonies. I mean, the one that really stands out is a couple. We had a brother in the Adelaide Assembly, you would have heard of him, called Paul Kay and his wife Linda. Paul was an exceedingly good evangelist. And uh, here in Adelaide, uh, Heather Buck, uh, witnessed to by Paul Kay, uh, mostly keep going to Del Sanderman, was a friend of uh, Pastor um, up in Cairns. Oh. Um, Rose and Neil, Neil Jenner. Neil Jenner, yeah. Witnessed to by Paul. And there'd be others if I thought long enough about, oh, um, married to, to um, in, in South, South Africa, Helen. Helen Carslake. Helen Carslake. Witnessed through by Paul Kay, which yeah. is sing- in turn is Cam Singleton's brother. sister. Sister, sister. sister. Yeah. correct. But it was actually Helen that got witnessed through with Jess, the mother, yeah. Yeah. when Paul was teaching her to play the guitar. Yeah, okay. So he's already established a very good evangelist. So Paul, Kay, so Paul Kay came to New Zealand, New Zealand. to Christchurch, yep. about a year after we got there. Yeah. And one the, where he struck gold again is he witnessed to Julie Watcho now. She was just a student, as he was, decided to do teaching, and he witnessed her, and Julie came in and, praise the Lord, married to Mark Watcher, and a great sister in the Lord, three children. You were just talking about one of the next generation down. Yeah, and then that's, that's Jean and Rose, of course. Jean and Rose. Who came to the Lord at that time. One of the times when Jock said to me, I had this crazy idea. I wanted to make bread dough jewellery and go and sell it door to door. I would meet people, see. What jewellery? Bread dough jewellery. What is bread dough jewellery? It's a very old-fashioned thing during the war years in New Zealand. People made it in their homes and it was sold through the jeweller shop. So you're talking about it's literal bread dough, Made of white bread and woodworking glue and food colouring. Right. And I had it was actually a big arty thing back in the 80s and I thought... It's something I could do because every now and then I, I would need to get some sort of a job because you, it's, it's fairly expensive when you go out 
for the Lord and you need to have some extra income. So what were you doing over there at the time? Well, I got Jean? into two things, building in the good months yeah. and selling real estate. I'm not a very good salesman. So when winter came, I'd go and get a job selling real estate. I knew real estate because of the legal part. Yeah. I did reasonably okay, but as soon as spring came, I, I want to go back building. So I worked for about five or six different uh, real estate companies. They got used to me after a while. You're only going to stay for a few months, aren't you? Sort of thing. So I think it petered out. And so, so that, you were, and so you were making bread dough jewelry. So I was working on building sites. Building sites for ladies is hard work. I've actually done it for forty years. And pretty unprecedented back then, I imagine. Possibly. You probably wouldn't have been a number of women on building site back then. <laughs> the first house we had built, when we realised that renting wasn't really the way to stay, was a kit house, and we had bought a block of land. We bought the kit house. We thought there would sort of be instructions with a kit house, like A goes with A, but actually it turned up on the back of the truck and it was a complete house, no instructions. So <laughs> so it's like, like an Ikea furniture set without the instructions. That's correct. <laughs> only, only big. And we were living in a shed while we did it. Was very exciting, but it wasn't Freezing even as good cold. as IKEA because at least they've got the things made up. Yeah. This was just a pack of wood and a stack of plasterboard, right? And, and can the you plasterboard imagine? out in the weather, yeah, right? With canvas over. Imagine what happened plastic. to some of that. <laughs> but anyway, one of the brothers who came down from Auckland to help us in the fellowship, he was a builder. He was a Scottish guy. And he had learnt building in Scotland. He had learned hard plaster, which is what they do there, not not putting up Plast- not plasterboard yeah. like we do. It's the real yeah. stuff, right? Real yeah. stuff. Horsehair, yeah. plaster. <laughs> my, my grandfather oh, was a plasterer. Yeah. Yeah. So he would turn up for half a day once a week and say to us, do this, this and this. Now, we I've had a bit a of background. Man. We had a background in handyman stuff. And actually, the house that we sold that we bought, the, the build, hall with. I'd done all the inside of it. Yes, that's right. So I got into building and I when we finished our first house, which I think was the most complicated one I ever did. Two-storey, four dormer windows. Dormer windows are complicated. The windows stick out in the roof. <laughs> so um, I said months. to Helen, I reckon I could do this. And uh, so I bought a block of land and then got Scotty to come. Didn't need a building licence. Can't believe that now. But they have had about seven inspections from the council. And as long as you do it to what they say you should do it, they don't bother you. You know, so one of the the things we got into that really kept us going over those years was buying an old house with a big backyard, one with a big front yard. And then we built a little house in the backyard and inner city development. And we had a, a, a lawyer who had, you know, private money. What do you call that um, mortgage? Personal, Personal rich mortgage people's money. money. Yeah, whatever. Not yeah. a bank. And um, he would just give me as much money as I wanted. So I'd just go and I'd buy enough money to buy the block of land or the house, enough money to build the house, enough money to live on while I did it. So the, I never actually – sounds like I tried to dodge paying tax, but I never actually had a salary because I lived off the money I'd borrowed. And because I, that sort of went into the house, and then we did, didn't do it very often, three or four times, five times, six times, I can't remember, and built a couple of houses for ourselves in the midst of all that. So it wasn't a huge amount of building, but, it, yeah, it was good. So while this is all happening, in, what, in the next shed we were living in, Jock said to me one day, things are starting to get a bit tight. You're going to have to go and get a job. 
So off I went. I actually had a day of prayer and fasting and I went down to the local shopping centre and I walked around and I looked at every shop and I was looking for ladies my age in their early 40s that I could relate to, that I could talk to. I looked at them while I got to the coffee shop and I said, yes, Lord, this is the shop. So I talked to the manager. I said, do you need anybody? He said, yes, I need a lady on the till and I need a cook. And I said, well, I don't think the till would suit me. I'm a bit shy of that, but I could be interested in the cooking job. So anyway, I became the cook and at the same day as I did this, another lady came in who was a friend of the lady who creamed the cakes and she got the job on the till and her name is Jean. And so I started there and I made my $115 a week, didn't I? You did. And I duly did my support of the family finances and I watched these two ladies particular that I befriended, Jean and Rose, and then um, a couple of months down the track, I got them together one day at a coffee when we were having our morning tea and something had happened. I won't go through the details of that. It was dramatic and the Lord had done an amazing thing. I said to all the ladies in the shop, there's about five of them, I said, I've got a story I would like to tell you, but I don't want any of you to interrupt. And I'll start to tell you at morning tea. And I did. And this continued all week. And what I didn't know was that Jean and Rose. And so, so what was the story you're telling them, the your story, testimony? The testimony of my daughter who was born with a second daughter, yeah. born with all the symptoms of Down syndrome. Yeah. And then um, miraculously, somehow or other, all those symptoms disappeared. And she is very normal and a very high achiever now. And a miracle that, and I told them how I'd come to the Lord. I told them a lot of stories of our life. God had done things in our life. And at the end of the week, I asked them, would any of them like to come? And two of them. Well, by the time it was divided. Why those who loved you and those who hated you. Oh, that absolutely. It had divided completely. The hate Helen group. She she talks about God. But, But Jean and Rose had made an agreement that they would go to four churches looking for the Lord. They were both really looking for the Lord. So this is prior to you talking to them? Yes, just prior. And uh, they had been, I think they had been to three at that point. And on the following Sunday. timing, amazing, huh? The timing was fabulous. They came along and they both came to the Lord. And they're still happily walking with the Lord. And things became uncomfortable there. They definitely didn't like Helen working there anymore. The and other the other side, the, the, the anti Helen group. The anti yeah. the anti the Lord group. Yeah. And um I left. And then I thought I said to Jock, right now I'm going to do the bread shop and bread <laughs> jewellery. So I manufactured all this stuff. Um you would buy a loaf of white bread, cut the crust off it, put it in the in the blender, put eight tablespoons of aqua deer with it mix it up like the dog's breakfast and knead it and uh, you would then put food colouring in it and use cake decorating tools and make earrings and brooches and such like. And as the glue went off, it became hard. Rock hard and would last forever. I've still got stuff. And that's Made like 30, 30 years f- ago. <laughs> and they did it a lot in the Second World War because there's no money and yeah, right. no joy. So then I um, had to get game and go and sell it. So I remember I got all dressed up went to knock on the lady's door over the road and I, and I couldn't do it. And then the next day I got all dressed up, go and knock on the door, I can't do this. And the third day I went over, I saw the lady come home 
And I thought, Helen, you've got to do this this time or you'll never do it. I went and knocked over her on her door and I said, hello, I'm Helen from over the road. I make bread dough jewellery. Have you ever heard of it? She said, no, come in. She bought about $30 worth. And I door knocked the street and the next street and at the end of the month I paid the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Just before we leave Rose and Jean, Rose said to Helen afterwards, because Helen was hardly slept that week when she got up and knew what she was going to say every day, really had to wind herself up to talk to them. But afterwards, Rose said, all you had to do is ask me to come to a meeting and I would have come. <laughs> and they're both still in the Lord in, in Christchurch, two great ladies oh, in the yes. fellowship. Fantastic. Yeah. So, Helen, most people wouldn't say if they were describing you, that you were a shy type of person who felt uncomfortable talking to people? <laughs> no, the Lord has changed me. Yeah. So uh, how, how did, when, when and how did that happen? Well, when we first got to uh, New Zealand, the first meeting we had was in a motel room and there were four of us there. And I actually, I remember standing there and I said to myself, Helen, you can't hide anymore. And that night I operated the gift of tongues for the first time. And I think that growing then with the assembly as it grew, I grew in confidence. Yeah. And um, by, of course, 15 years later, when we came back to Australia, by that time, I had uh, completely got over it all, as you all know. Yeah. Yes. Did you see a change in her from being the more shy person to be a, to being a more bolder person? I suppose I did. I, don't, I can't say I dwelt on it very much. I mean, I was very thankful that she, she did. Because it really was hard going in those first few weeks, mainly. Yeah. It got pretty easy after that. But in the first few weeks, a couple of times you sort of look at each other and say, what have we done? Yeah. Left Adelaide with a thousand people and now we've got four. Yeah. You know, and what's going to happen? I realise now if we hadn't had the people come down from Auckland and from Adelaide, we, I don't know, where it would have survived, mm. to be quite honest. Mm. And even the revival we had on Kangaroo Island years before, was others doing the witnessing and me just running the meetings. Mm. And I suppose that's where we've always sort of survived. Well, I've never been a great personal witnesser, yeah. but I run a meeting, yeah. a happy meeting, yeah. and people come to the Lord that way. Yeah. So. But we've got our strengths, right? There's all, exactly. there's all, all different has, roles. Well, yeah. that's what it is, is the Lord has given me the courage. So 15 years in New Zealand, what brought you back to Adelaide? Unfortunately, the split sort of took the stuffing out of me a little bit. Yeah. Because everything was going so good, as I said, we had 170 people and it went down from there. And um, our children left the fellowship, who were not children, of course. Yeah. Two of them were in their 30s and Vicky was 29 and their husbands and all the grandchildren. At the same time here in Adelaide, my two brothers left the fellowship yeah. and their wives. And all the, it was a big year. It was a job year, really, yeah. in 97, mm-hmm. year before we came back. Mm-hmm. So between 95 and 97... It had been, I suppose the saying is hard going. Then our hall got attacked by an arsonist, <sighs> and the second hall we bought. How many times? Six times? I think it's five or six five times. Five or six times. Yes. And then the last time it did, didn't quite burn it down, but the fire brigade came and they put it out. And it was a, So it was sort of things that really sort of come to a bit Can of a I halt. Can I just there. say something then? Yep. We got the phone call from Pastor Mark about half past 12 in the morning and he said, there is another attack on the hall and the fire brigade are there. And we drove down there and uh, we stood around and eventually after the fire brigade left and it was under control, Jock and Pastor Mark 
and I stood outside the side door and I remember somebody said, well, there's no way now we've hit the bottom. It's only up from now on. Yeah. And it was a great feeling actually to say, yeah, we're going to come back from yeah. this. Yeah. Because exactly. it must be incredibly hard, I mean, to be a, oh. to have that not only once but six times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the cleaning up of the hall, I can remember uh, plastic chairs don't do too well in no, the fire. No, they don't. They just <laughs> melt into a... <laughs> you had to reinforce the roof. It had burnt into the rafters. Yeah. It's an old hall built, built in the 1930s. Yeah. And it burnt into the rafters a bit, but they decided that if we put a, a fresh bit of wood alongside what was really there without pulling the whole building yeah. into bits, we could repair it. We had to get rid of all the black and the soot. We got two, it's the way they do it, three valuation, what do you call them, quotes yeah. from outside builders. And, of course, they picked the cheapest one, which was a bit over 100000 and uh, they said, if you had a mortgage on the hall, never did because we had that money we brought from Australia, we you would insist that you got one of them to do it because you've got to cover the mortgagee. Yeah. But seeing as you own the hall, we'll give you the money, you can do what you like with it. And uh, so being a builder. And so did you still have a mortgage on your house at this point? Because. Uh, was, yeah, we had. We yeah. had I, house think, mortgages. I think we did. Yeah, we had we were buying mortgage. and selling houses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had yeah, mortgages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The hall was debt free. Yeah. yeah. And freehold. so because it was freehold, yeah. you could. He said, give us, oh, we'll give you the money and do what you like with it. Yeah. You don't even have to do it on the hall if you don't. We'll, just, we'll be out. Yeah. We paid what we agreed to. So we repaired the hall with us working on it, and not just us, yeah. others in the assembly, but mainly Mark and Julie. We only spent about thirty or 40000 repaired it ourselves. Yeah. And then by that time we're starting to no kids were leaving, yeah. and uh, I just suddenly sat down. I think it needs a new broom. I think I'm uh, rightly or wrongly I felt like I'd run my course a little bit. Mark was not all that happy, but um, and so Mark Pastor Mark was a pastor at this point. He was, yeah. had been for quite a while yeah. in my two I see. Yeah. So I so said we're going to go back to Adelaide. He didn't really want us to go back. But... And our kids were unfortunately at the time were not communicating even all that well with our kids. And I just sat down and look, uh, Mark's young and uh, let's get out of the way before. And we dropped numbers quite a lot. We were down to about 50 people from maybe 100. So. And, and how, how old were you both at, at this time? 56, 57, 55. I was born in 42. I was, I was 55. Yeah. And uh, so um, we moved back to Adelaide and Mark then started running the assembly. We'd repaired the hall and we had that money left over. But unfortunately, numbers went on going down for a while. But in recent years, if I can jump ahead, yes. assembly's gone exceedingly well. And when they um, had the hall for quite a few more years until the earthquake, and then the earthquake totally wrecked. Re- that, that was it, Ben. That was the end of it, unrepairable. And they were able to buy this new hall they've got now, cash. Yeah. Very good. So it all eventually that all did work out. Mm. And they're very evangelical. Some of you have met Renee, who's uh, Mark and Julie's daughter, and you were talking about one of the brothers, and Luke also back in Christchurch. Uh, he's uh, very keen. And they have pretty well new people at every meeting, the numbers have come back up again, not quite to what they were, but I reckon if they keep going like they will, they will go back up again. You they, know, so. they were going to have a hall opening uh, last year, weren't they? This year, well, no, well, this year. Earlier this year, that's correct, and we bought our tickets for it, but of course we can't go yet. So I think by the time they have the hall opening, they're going to have a lot of new people in as well, which will be really exciting. Mm, that will so, be exciting. Yeah. So when you came back to Adelaide, so since then you've done quite a lot of travel 
overseas, yes. haven't you, particularly yes. to the UK? Yes. yes. Yeah. So my, my situation was I even said to Helen coming back, everybody that goes out is a pastor somewhere else, when they come back to Adelaide doesn't mean you're going to be a pastor. So I said I should be ready for that. I don't mind being a pastor. Sometimes I wish I wasn't a pastor. And uh, so I'll just take it whatever happens. And uh, any other decided I would be a pastor. But what do we do with him? You know, so um, I have. You can't to... just be a pastor by name. You've got no. to be a pastor in role. But I'm afraid the first is the correct one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so um, Pastor John was a little bit puzzled what to do when you go here, when you go there. I remember saying to him, I'm going to have a trouble. Picking on one of the Adelaide, Gawler wasn't going there. So we had three Adelaide ones and making that more important than the other two. Hmm. So when I left, it was just one big assembly. I still think of Adelaide as one big assembly. And really, it has never changed in the now 22 years. So I was still a fifth wheel on a wagon, still don't exactly fit in anywhere. and But I'm very happy. Well, we're pretty happy here. Sort of at Woodcroft now. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. Sort of. <laughs> We see you a lot, but, but which is we great. Have, we have a, an interest in the whole fellowship. Still still the same. All and not just the Adelaide, the whole fellowship. Yeah. Even with New Zealand now, and for quite a few years I said to Ellen, let's not make Christchurch special. We have five assemblies in New Zealand. Let's make the whole five of them equal mm. in, in our mind. As and so now with, with, with you know, what's happened in the world around coronavirus yes. and yes. with yes. video meetings, you're attending meetings all over the yeah, place. Exactly. Yes. I've never That's given right. so many talks for years. Yes. You yes. know, so back up to Gawler tomorrow, by the way. I don't mind that. I love going all over the place. I have got, we've got gypsy blood. There's no doubt about it. So, so going back to when we came back, I knew it was going to be a little bit hard to, it wasn't hard, but a little bit different to fit in. Well, it's very different to coming back to an assembly where there's established people, established That's pastors, right. three centres where you were sort of, you had a very clear, distinct role in New Zealand. What happened with Adelaide in particular, though, is I grew with it because my family was one of the first families ever came to the Lord in Adelaide and the other ones, unfortunately, all dropped away and we became the original family. And therefore, I grew with Adelaide with all what it went through, through the 60s and 70s, uh, up to that 83. And I was had been Pastor John's too, I see, you might say, all that time. But I really feel, it mostly sounds like I've been trying to super humble, but I'm not. I really believe believe it in my heart that it got to a point where I would have found it difficult to go on being the two I see. It needed somebody, I think, like Pastor Paul. And I think I really thank God that he got rid of me without getting rid of me. So <laughs> I went to New Zealand. And there are a few ways that the Lord can get rid of us. And sending you to New Zealand to set the work up there is a that's a pretty good way, I reckon. It was, it was. <laughs> it was. And while I was in New Zealand, I came to realise that being the top guy possibly wasn't quite me. I did it. I think I mostly did it better than I think I did it for 15 years. But I love being part of a team and not being the buck doesn't end with me. Yeah. I'm a bit cowardly there. Mm-hmm. So when I, I came... Know, I, don't, I don't know if it's... I don't think cowardly is the word. Yeah. I think it's we all have different strengths and we... Yeah. We need to play to the strengths. That's well, that's, we? that's that's really how we are. So, mm. as you know, we both love Bible prophecy, maybe Helen even a bit more than me, but we, we feed off each other on that sort of thing. We love. That's her. been a massive calling for you over the last few years, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, I, think I think so. A fascination. Also a fascination for me for the history. Yeah. And I uh, had that windfall when all the old magazines came back into my on a digital form from the 40s. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to then go through all them and get the original history 
and write the history and so on. So, so. had you had you both always been interested in prophecy and history or did that sort of where did where did the spark for that the come spark from? The spark came for me as a nine and a half year old when I received the Holy Spirit in, in Bowen Heads in Geelong and went to my first meetings and heard Pastor Jack Clay. Now I I can't remember whether we mentioned Jack before but he was a coin and metal collector and uh, he inherited his father's coins and medals. And during the Second World War, Jack was a um, merchant seaman, travelled and added to his collection. And then shortly after the war, of course, he came to the Lord and he began to look at his medals and coins and realise that these ancient ones told history and that history was corresponded with what the Bible said. So then he would make up sets of slides of these and show them. And, of course, Jack would talk for hours. And I used to just sit there. As a nine-and-a-half-year-old, I loved it. It, He just brought it to life. And um, I never forgot it. And as the years went by, I suppose it ticked over in my head. So you weren't really doing a lot of research or anything at this point. It was just embedded there in the back of your head somewhere. Just right, this interest and a love for it. And uh, then many, many years later, one day Peter Goodrich said to me when we were down here, this is probably, what, 13, 14 years ago or what, um, he just said to me, can you and Uncle Jock come one night and talk about Bible prophecy at our place? And and I said to Jock going home, oh, I'm, I'm going to study this stuff now. I've got time. I'm going to read all these books we've ever collected and I want to find out what's really right and and let's record it. The um, other thing that had an impact on you was when it was a David Matz. Oh, David Matz up at Elizabeth. This all happened at about the same time and I had talked to David a little bit about this and he loved all these things too. And then he had a heart attack and he died really quickly before his wife could get to the hospital or anything. Liz. And I... Liz? Not Liz. Liz, Liz, that's right. And I said to Jock, just imagine if something like that happened to me and I'm in hospital and I go into a coma and and I wake up and I say, Helen, you said to yourself you were going to do that and you never did it. So you better start right now. Don't run any risks. Do it Mm. straight away. So I went out and I bought all this A3 cardboard and I started handwritten. And you haven't stopped since. No, no I've worn out five typists and now I've learned to type myself. Because <laughs> it's not just you, you have other people involved in putting yes, together I the have. documents and Absolutely. other things as well. Yeah. The other thing that I think we're both very interested in is the whole work. Now, we haven't got involved particularly in the mission field and that's exceedingly well covered in here and they mm. have great revival, yes. whether it be Africa or Fiji or Papua New Guinea. So we have got involved in Europe and really try to help not that we're in charge, Pastor Paul's in charge of Europe, but as the anchor person, whatever you call it, the liaison person. But um, under that, I like, and he knows that, that we like travelling to England. I think we've been eight or nine times going through all the British assemblies and most of the European assemblies, and we love doing that. And if this coronavirus ever goes, we'll go back and do that again. Yes. I mean, obviously that ties nicely into your Bible prophecy pieces as well, yeah. doesn't it? So there's oh, a real... We love. Yeah. We, I suppose we particularly love England because of the British or so the Isles mm. are far off, as the Bible calls it, and all the descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all that part. And England to us is just a mass 
of history. Now, we can go to beautiful places like anybody can and look at a scene. Like we drove right through France and Austria and, and, and right through to Hungary. And it was nice, beautiful country. It really didn't mean a lot to us, though, when you hear other people rave on about the Swiss Alps or something. And England, to us, it's the history connected with that same beauty. England's got all that beauty. And uh, I know now and again I've said to people here in Australia that have immigrated here about how we love England, and they said, oh, no, I would far rather be in Australia. And I'd say, where did you come from? Oh, Birmingham. I said, I'm not talking about Birmingham. I'm talking about the English countryside. It's very different. So We bought an old motorhome on eBay from, from here from and Australia. And when was this? Um, 2014. Okay. Yeah, and uh, found it, sent the money to Pastor Bob, and he very kindly went up and bought it from it for us, did the transfer of the money from his bank account then into this other gentleman. And that old motorhome was 20 years old when we bought it. It was such a blessing. We went to all the assemblies in Europe and all over England in it. And we had our, at least we had our own bed every night. And, and so how long did you live in the motorhome for? Up to six months once. No, yeah. not six months, three, three months. months. But towards the end, maybe more six weeks. We went four times. Yeah. And how old were you at this point? Uh, 70s, both of us. <laughs> we, haven't, we haven't finished yet. But the good thing was you had the same bed every night, even if it was uncomfortable. <laughs> at least it was the same. <laughs> at, least it was, at least it was, you know, predictably uncomfortable. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Exactly. But it was so good. We, the first thing we took it to was the Holland camp at Bossa Cooper and we felt like Mordecai in the gate. Everybody came. On the way was into the tent. Parked right in the way everybody went into the tent. Yeah. Yes. So we're always having visitors. Very good. That would be fantastic. Oh, it was Pastor so good. Peter Vista now and again hop in there and said, They can't see me in here. <laughs> <laughs> I want a break. <laughs> and then we took it to Ireland and we parked illegally on, on the Hill of Tart. You parked what, sorry? Illegally? Oh, oh, we, well. might, we, might edit, we might edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need, you don't need to say I illegally. Think I think we just parked on the side of yeah, the road. Yeah, we parked With on us. the <laughs> – I don't, I don't think it was illegally. We, we parked up by the hill of – on the hill of Tara, right beside it, in, in a park off the side. I mean, it wasn't car there. Park. A car <laughs> park. Nobody else was there and slept the night there. It was awesome. It's such an interesting place to go. And I think one of the, the very interesting places in Ireland to visit was um, Devonish Island near Inniskillen because I had read during some of the study I'd done how uh, it was generally believed around Inniskillen by university professors and locals that Jeremiah the prophet had gone there. So they were showing you the legend. In the legend. So we thought, well, let's go and have a look at this place, Devonish Island. So it's it's in Loch Erne. So we got on the tourist boat to go and there was about 60 um, Irish people there all yabbering away in Irish. And I was sitting on the aisle and a lady opposite me turned to her friend and she said, do you know Jeremiah the prophet is buried on Devonish Island? My ear flapped like a cabbage leaf and I said to Chuck, did you hear that? But he, he hadn't heard it. So anyway, we, we went um, off, off the, the boat. We walked up, we walked around and, and oh, the uh, chap who was the um, tourist guide, his name was Steve, he had said as we were going along, he said, Devonish Island, Devonish means island of the oxen. And I said to Chuck, oh, I like 
that because Jeremiah the prophet had said, oh, that I might leave my people and go into the wilderness. Well, that particular word wilderness is, is a place where cattle graze. And I thought, yes, he would rest in peace in a place like this if there's any truth in this story. So then uh, we walked up and we walked around the hill and as we were coming back down, I said to Jock, I'll, I'll chat to that lady. So I caught up with her and I said, excuse me, but I couldn't help but overhear what you said to your friend about Jeremiah the prophet. And she said, yes, well, they told us on the tour. Ten years before. Ten years before, yeah, that Jeremiah was buried here. And I said, well, did they show you anything? She said, yes, they did. So she she walked around, she's kicking around, she couldn't remember, it was 10 years before. So I said, oh, that's all right, thank you anyway. And by this time it was time to leave. Everybody was going back onto the boat. So Jock and Helen come down, the last, like Brown's cows, and Steve is standing out the front welcoming everybody on, making sure they didn't fall in the in the uh, water or anything. And I said to him, and I picked my words carefully, I said, um, Steve, have you ever heard the legend of Jeremiah the prophet being buried here? And his face lit up like the sun, didn't it? He said, yes, come with me. So he strides off up the hill, leaves all these people behind in the boat. And he said, we used to talk about this all the time. But we get anti we got anti-Semitic comments. And he said, Do you know the Jews come here all the time looking for Jeremiah's grave? So anyway, we're walking up and he's chatting away, and he gets quite up the hill away, and he says, There's something here. So there's a, a marker here, a stone. And he starts kicking around, and we're thinking, Yeah, there's stones everywhere. Well, what is another guy there locking up the toilet? Yeah, and he called to him and he said, Hey, whatever your name is. Where's, where's Jeremiah's tomb? And he said, oh, it's over here a bit. So he goes over and there's a stone about this big. And so says, about 400 this, by 400. Yeah. 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 Th- this marks the spot. And we're, we're looking at each other, oh, yeah. And he said, yes, every time they do a, an aerial survey here, they say there is something here. But we're not allowed to dig. He said. So, so the legend is definitely Devonish Island. And having walked around it, we reckon, yes, Jeremiah, if you're here, this is much more peaceful than Jerusalem <laughs> or anywhere else. <laughs> so that was just a really good thing. And we did that in the motorhome. Ah, yeah. So I hear that there might be a dastardly plan to go back to the UK and travel, but not in a motorhome. No, this time in a boat. Uh, what they call a narrow boat. A lot of people would have heard of them. And twice in over those years that we've been to England, twice we've hired them for a week here and a week there. And So they're like a canal-type boat? Yes, it's, it's a very narrow. They're like a big caravan. Hmm. Uh, so the one that we're sort of interested in is 55 feet long, which is a lot longer than a caravan, maybe double the length of a caravan, of a decent one. And they're only only the width of a caravan. They're all in feet and inches there, six foot, ten inches wide. And as I said, 57 feet long. And So uh, that's, that's about just under 20 metres long by yeah, about, about three metres wide, roughly. No, no, not two metres wide. Two metres yeah. wide, yeah. yeah. Exactly right. Not very wide. They're called a narrow boat. The name says it all. And there's thousands of them. And you can pay a huge amount of money for them or... You can get quite a reasonable price for a bit older ones, which we actually like the older ones better, a lot more atmosphere than the modern ones. So uh, even now we go, I go online looking at, um, <laughs> at can that canal boat. But to do it, 
we possibly have got enough money just from selling our property and buying this property. So um, we would have overheads, and now that I'm on the pension, I'd have to really analyse all that. Yeah. So uh, whether we can do it financially, I don't know. But I think we'd, we'd want things a lot better in England, and like things like a vaccine mm. and and not the lockdown and all that. So whether that'll ever happen, I don't know. Well, see if the Lord's in it. If he allows us to do this last old-age dream where we can park this thing, it's very cheap accommodation, and then we can get off and spend lots of time with the Saints. Mainly I'd like to get a marina near a railway station because they've got a fantastic rail system in, in England and get to the meeting. We'll try to go every Sunday to a meeting, one of the, uh, how many assemblies? Five. One, of, one of the assemblies, whichever one. Yeah. One, two, three, Old four, six. Old dream six. dreams, it's a nice thought. Spend you never know. Summers in England and summers in Australia. Well, I, I, I reckon if anyone's going to do it, you guys are going to do it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I look forward to it. Well, we have enjoyed it on the two occasions before and we had fabulous fellowship on it where saints came and stayed with us and it was very, very, very good. Yeah. And you can fit a couple of double beddy type things in yeah, there. Yeah, you can. Yes. So if you did have. So, um, so if Emily and I came ben and visited and Emily you, came, yeah. we, you can Absolutely. Sleep in the dining room. No, mostly we So where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> so the last time we went, um, we had uh, Lee and Yanni came on board and, and we did a, a long trip with them. It was the most glorious day. It is a wonderful way for somebody to un- unwind. If they're yeah, it is a good unwind. Stressed. Yeah, I'll bet. Thank you so much for no, telling never. all of your amazing stories. In fact, we didn't get to all of your amazing stories. No. Probably only got 10%, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Not even that. <laughs> I should really say right at the end of this, though, when I tell the history of our fellowship, Pastor John always says, I don't remember it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got his version too. So, <laughs> so, so now what we can do is we can compare them. They're pretty, they're pretty close. Yeah, they're very, very really close. We're done. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. What a wonderful story of 60 years of serving the Lord. I'm not sure there's really much more to say other than a big thank you to Pastor Jock and Helen for not only sharing their story, but for their wonderful service to the church and their service to our Lord and Saviour, and for inspiring others to follow in their footsteps. Stay tuned for future episodes of Lives Changed by God. And until then, God bless. God bless.